Good afternoon everybody and welcome to Transcending Together with Julianne and Lee. Good afternoon, beautiful and amazing human beings. I hope you've all had a really good weekend and a good week so far. And for those of you who are just joining us, welcome. And for those who have stayed on from the previous show, welcome back from the break. So I'm here and it's a hello from me. And it's a hello from Lee. Awesome. So... Lee, how you been doing? I've been doing all right. I'm just not a fan of this current weather situation. I mean, can it stop raining for five minutes, please? Yeah, I know. It's like that. There's been like a, because we're both techies, era, four, era 404, problem loading summer. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. So, yeah, well, I, I can't say the same. I was in Berlin over the weekend and it was absolutely scorching and so humid. It was in, it was insane. I mean, I was like, yeah, sweating and just really, really hot. And we were, I went over to Berlin actually to play rugby. What do you think about that? That is exciting. Tell yeah, us was... more. yeah it was really good it was really good and obviously in the uk so that covers the rugby football union the english rfu the irish rugby football union the welsh rugby football union the scottish rugby football union all of them have banned trans women from playing in the women's category and we stand alone in the united kingdom in banning trans women because trans women are actually welcome in rugby everywhere else on the planet. So we're definitely trying to create ourselves a little prison island with our own rules and we're not particularly interested in anyone else and what they happen to be doing. And I think we've lost our superiority Definitely, if we ever had it at all. Well, I I think that's amazing. I didn't realise that it was kind of like isolated just to the UK, the ban. I thought it was more international. What about other countries like Australia, New Zealand? They are all 100% on board with trans women playing. So World Rugby who are like the global governing body, have they banned trans women at an elite level, which was controversial anyway at the time. And then, yeah, a couple of years later, and and then they left it up to the rugby unions around the world to come up with their own structures for that at a local level, community level. And yeah, what they basically decided in the UK across all the rugby unions was they were going to adopt that then at a community level as well. And other countries have said, no, we don't really see the point in doing that, especially at a community level. And I disagree with it at an international level as well, because every sports person wants to reach the pinnacle of their profession. And I think it's hugely unfair to not allow trans women to play rugby at a professional level. So that's where I think the world rugby ruling was controversial anyway. And But even having said that, then at a community level, there isn't necessarily an issue. So what they've done New Zealand have been absolutely emphatic that they have no intention to ever ban trans women. Australia, likewise, France, Italy, Canada, even parts of the United States, where obviously it's rugby's not the biggest game there. 
But remember, we had Carly on a few months ago, and she was talking about playing American football and no issues with her playing in American football. And there were quite a few people from the States and from Canada originally who were playing in the festival over the weekend. There aren't any issues in those countries either. So yeah, it's really interesting. And it's just the UK that have decided to do this at a community level. And that's obviously what my challenge to the RFU is about, my legal challenge. Hopefully more on that in the coming months. But for now, it's gone very quiet while I work on a few other things, which I'll talk about today as well. But yeah, so it is just a UK thing. And yeah, very, very disappointing. There were At the festival, there were four teams. There was the Berlin Bruisers. Then there were the Lowlanders from Amsterdam, the Berlin Irish, and Fortuna Lübeck, who are also a German team. So, yeah, really, really good festival. Had some workshops, training, and then we played sevens and some fifteens. And for me, it was particularly poignant because when I came back to playing rugby after my transition I'd said to myself because I am getting on a bit you know so I had (laughs) said to myself you know I'll give myself a couple of seasons and then I'll retire and go into coaching preferably obviously the RFU had other ideas and I wasn't able to play in the UK for this year's season so technically because I played last weekend I played this season which gives me two seasons (laughs) So now I can hang up my boots having achieved my goal. And it was just really nice. It was nice to, in a way, go out on my own terms, play some rugby. And yeah, so it was good. Brilliant. How many other trans players were there in the tournament altogether? I'm just having a sip of my mate, which is something I discovered in Berlin. If you can believe that, I went all the way to Berlin and came back with an addiction to a South American drink. So (laughs) I highly recommend it though. So yeah, they were, I think, so it's interesting actually, because they don't, for them, it isn't such a distinction. I mean, there were, by our definition, there were a couple of trans women there, a lot of non-binary players and gender neutral and a couple of female to male trans people as well. So very diverse, straight people, gay people, just very... I think it was one of the things that really struck me was the extent to which the people there are extremely sensitive to ensuring that everybody is comfortable. So when you arrive, you get your name tag and you write your name on and your pronouns, and they're very, very big on pronouns. They feel it's really important. We actually went out to a nightclub after the tournament on Saturday. And when I arrived at the nightclub, they were like very emphatic about the fact that they want everyone. They actually said to me, we want everyone who comes in here to feel welcome. If you find yourself feeling uncomfortable by anything that's going on, please absolutely raise it with us and we will deal with it as quickly as possible. So just a completely different dynamic to how things are here in the UK. It's quite incredible. What do you think the difference is? What What is the difference? Why are they more inclusive than, than us, particularly when it comes to the rugby side of it? I don't know if it's specific to rugby. And I think the German, the, the history around Berlin especially, is something which, well, 
let, let me put it to you a different way. So last year, about this time, I went to France and the place where I was staying, there was a town that was absolutely decimated by the German occupiers during World War II. And so that to me was a stark reminder of how World War II had affected people outside Germany. And I'd been to Germany before, but I'd been to Hamburg and... So this was my first time in Berlin and my first time really being exposed to what was previously East German culture and people. And obviously from before when the, when the wall came down. And so being there and one of the things that we did, so I stayed with a really lovely trans woman who, who was one of the other trans players. And I got there on the Thursday night, so that gave me the Friday, and we went and did a walking tour of Berlin. And one of the things that we did is we walked along the path of the old wall, and it was really quite incredible how it's just mind-boggling how that whole thing came about with the demarcation and East and West Germany and East and West Berlin and how almost overnight, well, it was literally overnight, they were just shut off. And it just gave me so much to think about. And one of the things that really came through so powerfully was how, I guess, my takeaway would have to be, there is a saying that good fences make good neighbors, but actually walls never do. And I think one of the things that really struck me was how easy it is for people to put these walls up physically and obviously mentally. And that really just got me thinking about separate development, apartheid, and all of those tricky subjects. So yeah, very thought provoking. And yeah, I think we're going to go to a quick break. And we'll be back right after this. Oh, I love this. We continue in moments. This is good. Yes, yes. You're locked to Trans Radio UK. Many website owners don't like their website hosting company or support provider, but are too scared to move to someone else in case they lose their site or it affects their business. Based in Telford at Purple Prince Media, we will move your website to us free of charge with the best support possible. And if you're looking to start up a business, we're also here to design and build your website from the ground up with unbeatable prices on web hosting and dedicated servers. We're also certified Magento developers, which is the world's biggest e-commerce platform. So rest assured, your online business is just a click away. Drop us an email on hello at purpleprints.co.uk or visit purpleprints.co.uk to get started. Purple Prince Media, the local website company. Win £25,000 and help truck listens at the same time. Enter the Rainbow Lottery and click Truck Listens as your chosen organisation. And not only can you win £25,000, 50p of every ticket purchased will go to Truck Listens. Please see www.transradiouk.com and click Win £25,000 for more details. Ever thought about having your own radio show? Well, now you can, as we're looking for presenters to join our team. No experience is needed and minimal equipment required. For more information, email info at transradiouk.com. Transradio UK. Tune in via DAB in Ireland. Download our app via your smart speaker or online at transradiouk.com. Welcome here. Don't go anywhere as we bring you some more trucking, great music and jazz here 
on Trans Radio UK. Welcome back, beautiful and amazing human beings. So just before the break, I was talking about walls and separation and all of those sorts of things. And one of the things when you do the wall walk is all along where the barrier was, you've got all of these pictures which depict how the wall sort of grew over time. And I think the one thing which really struck me was the extent to which for a lot of the people who were stuck in East Germany after the, the, the initial barriers went up, and I mean, they were literally jumping out of windows and things like that, where the buildings faced onto West Berlin. And it got me thinking about how, to what extent did they think it would never happen? To what extent did they think, ah, oh, yeah, but they'll never do that. And it's this totalitarian tiptoe, isn't it? Yeah, I don't remember much about the Berlin Wall, except I remember when it came down, because I think I was still probably a few years younger than you. I remember when it came down. And just reflecting back on what you said earlier about, you know, the, the separateness of it, here was a wall that was a physical barrier. But in our experience growing up in South Africa, there wasn't a physical barrier but the barrier was the laws that kept people separate and separated. Yeah, that's a really good distinction. And it doesn't have to be a wall, does it, necessarily? Because you've got legislative walls that you can put up, and it kind of talks back to what we were saying around a few shows ago about the creeping transgenocide that's going on at the moment. And it's not always obvious, is it? Sometimes it's uh, the wall was very obvious. It started out as just a fence. And actually, you saying you remember it coming down, it's probably because it all sort of kicked off in the 1960s. That was sort of at the height, you know, the Cold War and, and all of that. So it all sort of kicked off in the 1960s. So for you and I, we weren't born yet. So we'd only ever known the wall to be up. And when it came down, obviously, that was really incredible. And I still remember that. And Caroline, my sister, who was on the show, she actually went to a music festival in Berlin, where they celebrated the coming down of the wall. And there was a Pink Floyd concert. And they had said they wouldn't play the song, The Wall, until the wall came down. So it was quite an incredible thing to have them performing that track in Berlin and with the wall coming down. And I still remember on the news, people running, <laughs> running around with bits of the wall. And yeah, just incredible when, and, and I guess because it was such a, a, a visible sign of separation, I guess that had a lot to do with how exhilarated people were. And in a way, yeah, I guess in South Africa, it was more down to those first free and open elections in what was it, 92? 94, I think. 94. Yeah, that's right, 94. That was kind of the moment when it, it really became real, didn't it? That apartheid was genuinely over. So, and for Berlin, I think they talk about it being a traumatized city. Because obviously World War II, even though the Germans were the aggressors, the German people did still suffer. There is always that, even though they're doing horrible things to other people, 
they're doing it to their own people too, and people who weren't necessarily supportive of the war. So World War Two and losing World War Two. So chatting to some of the German people while I was over there, they said there was quite a, a big trauma associated with losing the Second World War. And that was bad enough. And for Berlin, obviously, it was bombed to rubble, mostly. And then to have your city then divided and your country divided. that And that always really fascinated me when I was sort of in my teens and stuff, trying to get my head around how do you... So Berlin was in East Germany, but, but there was this... It's kind of ironic that the wall actually went around... West Berlin. So it was this island of freedom in the middle of East Germany. And the trauma that the East Germans suffered and the East Berliners suffered. And some of those cities have just never recovered. And Berlin obviously is the capital, but it's not the most, it's not really the wealthiest city. It's, it's not a wealthy city. It has a lot of social problems and a lot of poverty. And a lot of it is as a consequence of the East German blockade. And cities like Dresden were, were obviously just absolutely decimated. And of course, West German manufacturing moved to other cities like Munich and Hamburg and Cologne. So yeah, it was extremely traumatic for them. And you get that sense that people are still traumatized. And there's almost a genetic memory of that trauma. And you get a sense of that. And it's quite hard to articulate. But you literally, as you step from one side of where the wall was to the other side of where the wall was, it, it just feels different. And it's really, I don't know if it's psychosomatic or why I felt that way, but you definitely feel different when you're in a part of Berlin that used to be in the East. And just another reminder of the shocking inhumanity that humans put each other under just unbelievable and yeah i think just to highlight there that it i think the wall came down in was it 1989 and yet you can still see today as you've just testified that disparities in the economy because the west was backed by capitalist economies and became flourishing hubs with high standards of, of living but in contrast east berlin was under like planned managed economy and they mm. still they're still addressing those disparities in unified Germany today. Yeah, there was almost there, there's almost a an air of superiority that the West Germans hold over the East Germans, and maybe not so much anymore at, at a sort of younger people. So the people I was with were were young, but I think structurally there is that, and there is resentment amongst some West Berliners with the amount of aid which needed to go into East Berlin to try and bring it back to a workable level. And that was another thing that really struck me when I was there was if, as you walk around what was old East Berlin, you have these magnificent buildings and, you know, really bourgeois type fancy apartment blocks and all the rest of it. And those were built during East German times. So it's, it goes back to that adage, which you know, under communism, all people were equal, but some tended to be more equal than others. So it was socialism for the poor and capitalism for the rich, I guess. And if you were lucky enough to rise in the ranks, you were lucky. The other thing which was quite astounding, we walked past the building where the old Stasi 
had their hall of records where they had a file on every single East Berliner and East German. And Leah Maria, who was my host while I was there, she was saying how ironic it is that they used to tap phones, put up cameras and, and all of those things, put trackers on people's cars. And she did point to the fact that now we do that to ourselves. <laughs> we take the microphone into the car with us and we just hope like hell no one's actually listening or watching. And thanks to Edward Snowden, we know that they pretty much are. And we've just done their job for them. And that really struck me, the extent to which we are handing over our personal sovereignty. But how do you exist without doing that? Yeah, it's just another wall, really. It's the new wall. It's the wall for 2023 and beyond. It's the technological walls, you know, with the rise of the digital age and all the information firewalls. For example, what goes on in China is like a completely different form of division. And mm. again, it's another ba barrier, like you've mentioned, tracking and listening in and things like that. And it can also serve as a potential division going forward, these digital walls. Yeah, because in as much as the Berlin Wall, the division went up literally overnight, in much the same way, with all of our tech, with our connection to technology, we can be walled in or walled out, Instantly. if you like. Yeah instantaneously and that's where this debate around digital currencies is such a big thing because at the moment you know if you're fearful <laughs> that your bank might go under or for whatever reason you choose to keep your savings in cash once they take away cash we are completely and utterly at their mercy and as much as i don't like the man nigel farage being debanked has brought this to the attention of a lot of people where if you get debanked already, you know, regardless of digital currency, if you can't have a bank account, you are done. You can't receive a salary. You can't pay your bills. It's just, oh, I, I, it's really, really scary. And that just was on my mind the whole time I was there is this how instantaneously you can get walled in. And that's what I'm saying. West Berlin was a walled city. Yeah, if you had the right papers and the right passport, you could come and go as you pleased. But you had to travel through East Germany to get out of West Berlin. Yeah. And yeah, I just, woof, yeah. Coming on to the digital currencies, I think the issue for me is that the digital currencies will be programmable, okay? Yeah. Programmable. And yeah. um, that to me is a red flag because they can program that digital currency for any particular need that they desire. So, for example, you might go to the shops and they say, no, you've had too much alcohol this week, so we won't allow you to purchase that. Because the currency is programmable, they can switch it off without yeah. you know, even giving you any notice. It's, no, sorry, you've had your quota. Yeah, and also people on benefits. They can be sent digital currency that can only be spent on things that the state believes they ought believes, to be paid yeah. for by benefits. So your personal choice, I always think about this whenever I see homeless people on the street and I think to myself, 
how many times I've heard people say, oh, I don't give money to homeless people because they'll just spend it on alcohol and drugs. And I'm like, well, if you're living on the streets and you're homeless, alcohol and drugs might be your only refuge. Mm. So it's not for me to judge what they choose to do with the five quid or one quid or whatever it is I give them. It's, I think it's, it's hugely condescending to say to them, oh, are you hungry? I'll get you a sandwich, but I'm not going to give you the five pounds to get a sandwich and a cool drink and a packet of crisps because I don't believe you're entitled to make a decision for yourself about how you might spend that fiver. And that's exactly what the government's going to do. Those programmable central bank digital currencies are, I think it's a red line and we can't allow ourselves as a society to cross that red line. And of course, they'll sell it with all kinds of benefits, but it just is not and should not and should never be. Yeah. And I think another concern that I have is that people are going to think that these digital currencies is like Bitcoin. Okay. And what happened to Bitcoin at the beginning? The price rocketed and people made fortunes. And I think people are going to be like, oh, yeah, it's a digital currency. Bitcoin is a digital currency, you know. But it's not. It's completely different. Completely different. Yeah, absolutely. And actually now, Bitcoin, so I've got some Bitcoin and the price has been relatively stable for most of this year. Most of this year, yeah. It hasn't shot up. It hasn't dropped down. It's just stayed pretty much around where it is. And I think that's good for Bitcoin. That's good because one of the things which was always one of the accusations that was always laid at them was that it's risky. There's lots of risk. And that's what they were trying to use as a means to come in and control it and regulate it. They're saying, oh, people are going to lose all their money. Are you welcome to go down to Ladbrokes and place a bet and lose all your money gambling without regulation? But all of a sudden, people, sophisticated investors, I mean, it's not easy to get into Bitcoin to understand how it works and to make your purchases and set up a, an account on the exchange and mm. all of those sorts of things. So, so people who buy Bitcoin, you have to accept that 99% of them know what they're doing and what they're getting themselves in for. And there's a very good reason why betting shops are always in low-income areas, because they know that's where they have the greatest ability to make money. And the fact that you know the house never loses. so It's a rigged yeah. system. Yeah. Yeah. You're allowed to gamble down your local betting shop, but heaven forbid that you maybe take a dabble on some Bitcoin. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) I've also got some Bitcoin that I got like in 2018. So it's been a while, but you're right. It's not a simple process to do. And you have to have a, a bit of understanding of how the system works. It's not straightforward. It's easier to go down to the betting shop and place a bet on horse number five or whatever. But Getting Bitcoin is is not straightforward. You have to be quite tech savvy, I think. Absolutely. We're going to go to a quick break and we'll be back right after these messages. Oh, I love this. We continue in moments. This is good. Yes, yes. You're locked to Trans Radio UK. Are you trans and non-binary and feel like drugs or alcohol are impacting your life negatively? Why not check out Trans Sober? We're a grassroots peer support group for the community, by the community. Find us at www.transsober.org and join us online or come to one of our weekly drop-ins. We also offer other useful resources. 
Looking for business cards? Flyers? In fact, anything in print? We can help. Digital format specialists. www.printsmart.uk.com Think smart, print smart. Did you know you can advertise with us for less than a pound a day? Call 0207 856 0584 or email sales at transradiouk.com. Trans Radio UK, a global radio station the whole LGBTQ community can be proud of. Are you looking for an intimate and affordable graphic design service? Are you an indie author needing help to publish your book? Theodora Rosenberg is here to help. With packages for marketing, publishing and branding available, you're sure to be satisfied. Find out more at authortheorose.com. Trans Radio UK is on right now. Across the UK and beyond. Now, now, more of the music you love. Trans Radio UK. Welcome back, beautiful and amazing human beings. So just before the break, we were talking about Bitcoin and digital currencies and all the rest of it. And then in the break, Lee was asking me about what is mate. Lee, what is mate? <laughs> it's, it seems to be like it's a tea-like drink, I believe. It is indeed. So With lots of caffeine comes, in it. Yeah, so it originates in Patagonia and it's a communal drink. So obviously COVID and post-COVID, people tend not to share each other's mate. But basically you have this little mate cup and you put the mate in it and then you just add hot water and you sip away through a special mate straw. And it's actually really good for you. And I would certainly recommend if people haven't tried it, it takes a bit of getting used to it. It's quite, if you're into herbal teas, you will enjoy it. But it does take, it's got quite a sharp taste. Your first brew can be quite, quite strong. And you're like, oof, I'm not sure if I, I, I'm into this. And then as you keep going and it starts softening a bit, it's, yeah, I can understand why it's so popular and so addictive. <laughs> Probably a good, a good habit, a good addiction, I hope. I'll stick to my chamomile tea and honey. Well, yeah. <laughs> it's possibly not for everyone until you try it I, I mean i'd heard of it and yeah but yeah really really amazing so just coming back to the rugby side of things and it was just for me when i came back into playing rugby after my transition i had said to myself i'd set myself a goal of playing for two more seasons because obviously i'm a bit oh mature <laughs> matured <laughs> and so I'd said okay I'm going to play for two seasons and then I'm going to properly retire and then I wanted to go into coaching and obviously the RFU had other ideas and I wasn't able to play in England for this last season so I only ever played one season and that was hugely disappointing for me and it really I felt like I hadn't ended my career on my own terms type of thing. So being able to go to Berlin and actually play meant that technically I did play this season. So I'm claiming my second season. <laughs> and to a certain extent, I can go out on my own terms now. But the fight will continue because one of the things that just really struck me was when I was there 
to training and playing and being amongst the absolutely incredible rugby family, it just reminded me the extent to which that gives me so much positive mental health. I felt like I belonged again. And that's something which the UK, our government, and this includes the see you next Tuesday Labour and Tories, obviously, but just last week, Wes Streeting, who's should Labour win the next election, will be the health minister because sh- he's shadow health secretary now or something. He came out with transphobic comments, as has Keir Starmer. And it just reminds us that whichever government we get next is still not going to look after trans people and trans women especially. And this is where I'm really setting out my stall here, because for the most part, and we've talked about this before, And I don't mean this disingenuously to any trans men out there in our listener group. But trans men, to a large extent, are being given a free pass. And the free pass is, I think trans men need to remember they're only getting it because of the inherent misogyny that exists in our society. Because what the men, the cisgendered men, are effectively saying to you is, yeah, you're okay, you know threat to us, so that's absolutely fine. And yeah, we can completely understand why a woman would want to be a man. So yeah, sure, okay, if you want to do that, then yeah, have at it. But they just can't get into their heads. They can't seem to understand how it is possible that a cisgendered man would want to be a woman and give up. And and what they're saying is, why would you want to be a woman and give up your inherent privilege that you have? And whichever way you look at it, it's like there is a player in the Women's uh, Football World Cup from Canada called Quinn. And Quinn is non-binary. And people have been losing their shizen (laughs) over them playing. They're saying this person can't play. This person can't play on a women's team because they're non-binary, but they are assigned female at birth. And it just, they still just can't handle that. They can't like just accept that, guys, this is the way it is. And we were talking a few weeks ago about the gender binary and... I was saying that I guess to a certain extent you can kind of understand why a government structurally would need to understand who all the the penises and vaginas are out there so that they can understand the the future health, health of dreams. their nation. Yeah. But I was chatting to my new German and Dutch friends and they pushed back and they said no it is actually none of the government's business. And the reality is gender non-conforming people only account for half to 1% of the population. And even if it becomes 5 or 10%, at the end of the day, there are always going to be enough penises and vaginas out there to propagate the species. So the idea that you are marked on your birth certificate as male or female actually has no function whatsoever other than to continue to enforce this gender binary. So I take back what I said a few weeks ago. I don't think there is any situation or circumstance under which your gender marker is of anyone's interest except your own. Yeah, I mean, why do we have a birth certificate in the first place? It's it's almost like a like a pink slipper certificate of ownership, isn't it? That's how I think of birth certificates. It is. It's where you 
sign you here we go down the rabbit hole (laughs) (laughs) but it's true it's true it's like i never asked when did i subscribe to pay income tax i never did none of us ever did so what effectively a birth certificate is is you are registering your child as a human being for the future benefit of the state to leverage the resource that human resource to generate tax revenue that's all you are to them and they need to know who you are so they can put you on the register and track how old you are so they can work out when you ought to or should or are allowed to start working and then make sure that they get their slice of all of your effort so yeah i mean (laughs) why have a birth certificate at all now we're going even deeper because we were like debating why have a gender marker now you've just flipped the the whole thing on its head and said well why do you have a birth certificate (laughs) yeah well if your gender market is on the marker is on the birth certificate why 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 have a birth certificate in the first place yeah let's do away with birth certificates okay wait you know one step at a time baby steps baby (laughs) steps let's get the gender marker off the birth certificates for a start and it's quite interesting because one of the the people said to me so if you have a look at your passport, why does your passport need uh, a gender marker? And I guess the, the reality is, and again, it comes back to the gender binary. And so what I was saying was there is a gender marker on your passport because you're going to be traveling to countries where there is a differential in rights between male and female, especially in the Middle East. So having gender markers removed from passports is always going to be problematic because of all these international treaties around passports as as a means of identification. And yeah, I guess that's one of the challenges. And all it says is it goes back to what we said a few weeks ago, which is the gender marker in and of itself is neutral. It's a bit like a scalpel. A scalpel in the hand of a surgeon is going to save a life. A scalpel in the hand of a murderer is going to take a life. So the scalpel is neutral. So is a gender marker until you decide what you're going to use it for. And I think if they insist on using it for nefarious purposes, then you need to sanction the use of a gender marker. You need to take it away. Because why is it relevant? We are all human beings. And... As we go into the next break, I'm going to leave you with something to think about. And that is, <laughs> when I was talking to my new friends, uh, I was saying to them, you know, it's all about penises and vaginas. That's what government wants to know, is who's a penis and who's a vagina. And someone pointed out to me the fact that, actually, you don't need penises. You just need gonads. And that is a technical term, ladies, gentlemen non-binaries, all you people, beautiful people out there, all you need is gonads and ovaries and you've got propagation of the species. I will leave it there and we will go to a quick break. Oh, I love this. We continue in moments. This is good. Yes, yes. You're locked to Trans Radio UK. If you're transgender, feeling lonely and don't think there's any help available, well, now Transradio UK have Truck Listens, a confidential phone service just for you on 0800 009 6640. Talk for some time and you're feeling good. 
I'm so much better than you thought it would And you really glad you went and made that phone call That was a small price for you to pay Go on, make that call. It's a small price. To listen to every day. To talk to someone who's both sympathetic and empathetic, call Truck Listens. 0800 009 6640. Truck Listen, 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 listen. Did you know we receive no funding here at Trans Radio UK? To keep us on air and growing, we rely on donations. To donate, please head to www.transradiouk.com and click the link. A regular payment of £20 will see you become a partner of Truck. Other options are available. Email info at transradiouk.com for details. A big thank you from all the team here at Trans Radio UK. The world's largest radio station for the trans community. Trans Radio UK. Welcome back, beautiful and amazing human beings. So during the break, Lee reminded me that you don't, if all you need is ovaries and testicles or gonads, then all that's left is a womb. And are we hurtling helter-skelter towards baby factories? What do you think? I think that's an interesting thought there yeah because even today like with with the um ivf fertilization that they've been doing for a while now it's quite interesting that it's not too many steps away from actually having like artificial wombs and things like that it's probably closer than than we would like to admit I mean, they've been cloning, that cloning technology from, you know, goes way back to Dolly the Sheep. Yeah, but they still gestated the clone in a womb, in an actual sheep, though, didn't they? Yeah, but that was dozens of years ago. How long ago was Dolly the Sheep? Yeah, many. And how much has technology moved on since then? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they've got artificial hearts, so it's probably in a lab somewhere, isn't it? And it's just waiting for society to catch up and be ready for it. And at the end of the day, it can still be your child. I know someone who the partner is paraplegic and unable to copulate. And as a consequence of that, what they did is they harvested sperm from this person because they were still producing sperm, but they were unable to copulate and used the sperm with an ovary to create the child. IVF basically yeah and it was still genetically their child however for a lot of cisgendered women the idea of carrying the child is very important to them and I don't disagree with that and I do think that there is something to be said for that bond that exists between the natural mother and the child but I don't think we many steps away like with central bank digital currencies This is just another technology that is waiting for its time when we are actually going to turn around and say, oh, you know what, actually, let's just take some sperm from the assigned male at birth (laughs) and take an ovary from the assigned female at birth and make a baby in this little machine over here. 
And I wonder, it's an interesting discussion, I guess, from a sociological perspective. Because like I said, I do think that there is a special bond that exists between the 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 person carrying the baby and the baby. You see it even with surrogate mothers. There there is a connection that you can't get away from. And it's one of the things that the handmaid's tale actually touched upon was the fact that you can't just use a cisgendered woman as a baby carrier, because there is this connection between the child and the person that carried it, even if it's not there, over, even if it wasn't as a consequence of the carrier's ovary. So that's an interesting concept, I think, in terms of understanding. So how does, what would that mean to society? How would we be as a society if we lost that nine months that exists when it is just the baby and the mother. And we have, Lee and I have a mutual friend who is carrying a child as a consequence of IVF. And it does, I know for, for our friend that that is something that is hugely, she's loved carrying that child. And that bond that exists, the conversations, the talking, they, they say that with babies in the womb. They, they're learning your voice. They're learning about you. They're hearing things. So if we take that away and all they hear is the hum of a machine, I wonder what effect that would have on society. I think it would have a profound effect on, on humanity as a whole. Like you say, I saw it with, with my niece who's got an eight-month-old now, but she was pregnant last year. And the things that she started doing and interacting with her, her baby, reading stories and listening to the right music and the conversations. And she, she would just have absolute humongous conversations with her unborn child. And that bond is like really, really special. And I think when you start looking at the whole sort of ethics about human cloning and, and that sort of thing, I think those questions would need to be addressed from an ethical point of view. I, I get the ethics argument. I do. For me, it's more of a psychological side. Because I think if you're going to have an ethical debate about it, then you need to have an ethical debate about IVF. So there is a big portion of the global population who don't believe in IVF. They don't think that's natural or God's will. Certainly in Hebrew culture, in ancient Jewish culture, if you were barren, male or female, that was considered God's judgment on you. So God had decided that you weren't worthy to propagate. And that was a big debate decades ago around IVF. Is, is it ethical? Is it religious? Are, are we following the principles? And it, I guess it circles back to this whole stupidity around religion, doesn't it? Because there was a big religious debate about whether or not it is God's will for people who are unable to make a baby naturally should be allowed to have children, which we think about that now. And we're like, well, that was just ridiculous. I can't believe they actually thought that all those years ago. But they did. They did think that. And there was a huge religious backlash to IVF, just like there is a religious backlash today around gender non-binary people. 
And I can only hope that at some point we will get over this as well, where we will look back and say, can you believe there was a time when they actually put an M and an F on your birth certificate? A bit like when we were talking about credit cards and you, you were saying, oh, I never knew they actually ever did that. And I'm like, yeah, they mm. did. So let's take them off birth certificates. And in 20, 30 years time, people will look back and say, I can't believe they did that. What do you mean how, they put like... How archaic? How archaic? How backward are you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it just... Speaking of archaic, I mean, everywhere I went in Berlin, the toilets were generally gender neutral. So, you you know, you had cubicles and you had urinals and the cubicles weren't anywhere near the urinals. So clearly if the people in possession of a penis wanted to go and relieve themselves at a urinal, they were welcome to do that. But equally, people in possession of a penis can also use a cubicle if they feel that that's, a, you know, they maybe they have social anxiety, maybe they prefer to sit when they pee. Who are we to judge? We just let them do it how they want to do it. And yeah, it was really just so normal, just so everyday. Nobody gave it much thought. They all just did what they needed to do. You do your business, you wash your hands, and you're on your way. And that was the end of it. It's really quite extraordinary. Was that in like most public places or like hotels and shopping centers, train I was stations? <laughs> I was not fortunate enough to stay in a hotel. So I wouldn't know. But certainly in the nightclubs and pubs that I went to, that was the case. And I'm just trying to think around public restrooms. I think a lot of, yeah, a lot of the public restrooms were gender binary. But there was certainly no, I mean, I have become quite triggered now going into a woman's bathroom, which is, I guess, to a certain extent, a symptom of the pressure that we are under as as a community because I'm second guessing myself now but in Germany it just was never an issue and I have to say that I am teetering very close to the edge of actually getting the hell off this island maybe I'll go to Ireland because I having been shown the freedom I guess it's like someone from East Berlin being exposed to what is possible in West Berlin would never choose to go back to East Berlin. And I feel almost like that. I feel like I am an East Berliner who has gone to West Berlin and now I'm back in East Berlin and I'm thinking, I really don't want to be here anymore. I mean, even when I arrived in Berlin and at passport control, the guy was like saying, EU passport, other passport. And I actually apologized. I said, I'm sorry, I'm, yeah, UK passport. Just ridiculous. And yeah, I, I've actually, that penny has literally just dropped now that I think about it, that we are this septic isle that is the United Kingdom. We are the East Germans of, of Europe. And we are in a lot of trouble. I think that's a that's a very interesting analogy. I think if you reflect back on on the conversation that we've had in this particular episode, I think kind of like concluding it like that was almost inevitable. 
to have the realization at the end of the conversation that yeah you know we we are in this in the in this prison we are in this prison and you know there's there's particularly with with regards to the rugby playing and and the banning and that sort of thing why is it that different in the UK compared to just across the road in yeah why is it so different and which way is the totalitarianism of it going to go is it is our ours going to spread out to to Europe or is the influence of Europe going to penetrate our walls so to speak why is it so different I think there is definitely a rise in far-right sentiment I say far-right because Fascism doesn't have a left or a right. So South Africa was a fascistic Western civilization. It was capitalist. This idea that fascism is always socialism is not true at all. South Africa, Israel, they are capitalist economies, and yet they practice a form of fascism. Fascism doesn't care what the prevailing economic theory is. It just demands totalitarianism. This is what we're seeing in America. I mean, America, the homeland of capitalism, is teetering on the edge of fascism, as is the UK. And it's got nothing to do with which party is in place. Yes, a lot of dictators and fascists have leaned left initially in order to get the people on their side and that's what we're seeing now is like we shouldn't have to pay for all of these other people just pay for ourselves we can't afford socialism so we've got this right-wing fascism which is a swing in a different direction from what we had traditionally which is the left-wing fascism but it's fascism nonetheless and fascism like the scalpel doesn't care who's wielding it. It will do what it needs to do. And fascists like Donald Trump, Boris Johnson, Keir Starmer, any of them, they don't care which way they, f- they, they lie, whether it's left or right. They don't really care. They just want power, and they want power above anything else, and they will use whichever mechanism they can to get it. And But yeah, from our perspective in the UK, we are that walled city that was West Germany. And everyone around us is, or is it the other way? No, because the wall was around West Germany. It's just inverted (laughs) that the free people are on the outside of the wall and we're the unfree people on the septic aisle. And I guess on that note, we should probably leave it there before I get even more angry. (laughs) save it for another episode yeah oh there's so much more to talk about on that one but yeah thank you everybody for tuning in and listening to us we are on substack at tigergirl.substack.com we would love you to reach out engage and chat to us there and of course there is the chat room on trans radio you're welcome to join us there as well but with that it's a goodbye from me And it's goodbye from Lee. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, everybody. Leave you in love and light. Bye. Just a final word from me, folks. Please do hang around for Miss Glorious Unorthodox Jukebox. And, yeah, see you next week. Love you lots.
Bye. For the community, by the community, Transradio UK. All hit music. This is Rihanna. Hey, this is Pink. Trans Radio UK. Did you know we have an active and fun chat room? Come and join presenters and other listeners at transradiouk.com. Truck United FC, our award-winning football team. Catch all the latest action at www.truckunitedfc.com. Bringing you the best music, the latest news, and the best chat shows across the globe. Trans Radio UK. Trans Radio UK, here for the community. 24 hours a day.